John chapter 7. We're in a series through the Gospel of John. We actually had begun it, well, a while back, and in the spring we were in it and took a break, went through the book of Micah and a couple of other, or another series. Uh, and then so we picked back up uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so uh, today uh, in John 7, and the subtitle for this particular message is The Lord Will Suddenly Come to His Temple. The Lord Will Suddenly Come to His Temple. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we engage God's Word. Heavenly Father, Your words are life. The Lord Jesus invites us to come to drink from the rivers of the water of life. And so, Lord Jesus, as we hear your words and you are present amongst us as we gather together in your name, give us to drink from the river of the water of life. Satisfy our souls with yourself, Lord Jesus. You are our King. You are the one to whom we bow. We give you praise honor, and glory. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. John chapter 7. The, the, the setting of John 7, really John 7 and 8, and all probability all the way through chapter 10, is a festive time in Jerusalem. It's, for Jesus, a time of severe testing he, he really, as we're going to see when we engage the chapter, Jesus is going to go right into the hornet's nest, so to speak. The place where the Jewish leaders desire to arrest and kill him. There are temptations and traps all around. Pressures to do something at the temple to make himself famous. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Or maybe better, the Feast of Tents. It reminds them and us of the tents that the people lived in during the wilderness wanderings, and God protected them. So they they celebrated God's provision and protection in this wilderness time and the journey from from Egypt to the promised land, the 40 years. Jesus, as we'll discover in our text, is in a wilderness wandering of his own. Remember, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in John 1.14. That word dwelt is just the verbal form of tented or tabernacled among us. The same word used for the feast of tents or tabernacles. And, and so, Jesus here is, it, it will seem, being clearly reminded that, that he's in a tent that is like the lilies of the field, the flowers of the field that fades, that passes away. He's experiencing the threat of death from his enemies. He's having to be alone, as we'll see, and, and by himself to battle this temptation. The feast takes place during a very dark time of year, and it's a dark time in Jesus' life, and yet he is supernaturally protected and provided for by the Father. John's gospel is, is set up as a whole, as a sort of a dual trial. There are two trials going on in the gospel of John. One is ultimately the trial of Jesus by the Jews and ultimately by the world. And ultimately, the leaders of the Jews and the Romans together will convict the innocent one to death. And that happens, of course, later in the gospel. But if one were to make the case that John's gospel is a cosmic trial, 
going both ways. Exhibit A would be John 7 and 8. And even more particularly, John 7, our text today. If you like courtroom TV, whether it be Law and Order, or if you're really old, Perry Mason, or maybe Matlock, uh, this is one of those trials that, like a, a good Matlock or a good Perry Mason, ends where the, 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 the defense attorney, Perry Mason, leads the w- main witness for the prosecution into really uh, 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 revealing that they are the ones that have committed the, the crime, that, that they're guilty of the crime that the, the defendant is on trial for. And so the, the show ends with the, the defendant going free and the assumption that conviction occurs for this witness that's being used. Well, Jesus is on trial in our chapters here. Not a legitimate trial, because they will never give him a legitimate trial, as we see toward the end of the book. But it's a public trial. It's a cosmic trial, one that's going on between heaven and earth. And in the end, it's his accusers who are convicted of guilt. As we go through this chapter, keep in mind, there's so much going on in this chapter, it's a little bit like the conductor's musical score. If you look at the conductor's musical score, it doesn't just have his part. It's got the part for the clarinets, the oboes, the saxophones, the horns. You know, it's got the bass lines, the, the, the other lines. It's got all these different pieces, so it's, of course, a lot more pages involved. And that's what this chapter's a bit like. You've, you've got honor issues and shame issues. You've got uh, trial issues. You've got all these different themes that are running. And I'm going to try to highlight as many as I can as we go through it, but they're all relevant to the storyline of John 7. So we're going to cover this under three headings. The first of which is hidden Jesus. Hidden Jesus. Where is he? And so if you'd begin reading with me in uh, John 7 and verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He, He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. They were searching, literally, to kill him. But when the Jewish festival or feast of tabernacles was near, we'll just pause right there. Verse 1, the Jews were literally seeking to kill Jesus. It reminds us of what was told to us back in chapter 5 and verse 18. In chapter 5 and verse 18, (coughs) after Jesus had healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, It tells us that they were seeking to kill Jesus because he had healed this man on the Sabbath and then he had, in explaining why he did it, made himself equal with God. So John 7 begins by reminding us that that's what they're intent on doing. But Jesus knows that it's not his time yet. He's in complete control of his life and he'll not be killed until it's the Father's will, until the hour has come. The Jews in John's Gospel, and here in the NIV it it uses the phrase uh, the Jewish leaders, but quite literally the Jews in John's Gospel, that is the Jewish leaders. That's why the NIV does that, to help us understand that's who John is talking about. And and it's, it's not just the general populace of the Jews. So we will see that distinction in this chapter in particular. That's, it's, we're told in verse 2 that the, the Feast of Tabernacles is near. The Feast of Tents was near. And that will be the setting, really, as I said a moment ago, probably all the way through chapter 10, certainly in chapter 7 and 8 as well. It was the favorite feast <coughs> of the Jewish people. 
they loved this above all their feasts. It, it was kind of, it, it was a harvest festival like we're having this evening. But maybe more on the level of an, a, a giant Oktoberfest, okay, mixed with Christmas. Okay, so imagine those two kind of coming together. You've got, it's a dark time of year, so they had lights everywhere. The streets of Jerusalem were lit up for this week like nobody's business. Lights everywhere, and it was very festive. And they were celebrating the harvest and the goodness of God, but there was more to it than that. Most significantly, it was a celebration, um, in their minds, of the final harvest. It was looking toward, we're celebrating the harvest, but we're looking toward the final harvest, the day of the Lord. And that meant the appearing of the Messiah to the Jewish mind. The Messiah will suddenly appear. And so they came to that festival every year thinking, is this the year, is this the time that Messiah will come? And Malachi 3 puts it this way in verse 1. The Lord says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now that was John the Baptist, right? And then, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says Yahweh Almighty. However, when the Lord they are seeking comes to his temple, it tells us in Malachi chapter 3 verse 5 that, they will put him, that, that he will put them on trial. In Malachi 3 it says, So I will come to you, or I will come to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud the laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me, says Yahweh Almighty. So that's the setting. That's the scene. That's the festival they're going to. This is the expectation of the Jewish people. And then in verse 3, we read, read this. Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become famous, a public figure, acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. Show yourself to the world. See, they want Jesus to have fame in the eyes of the world and so draw people to himself. We find out in chapter 12 that the only way Jesus is going to draw people to himself is not through fame. No, no, not fame at all. If I be lifted up, what's he referring to? crucifixion. I will draw all people to myself. Jesus was a public relations nightmare, quite frankly. I mean, what do you do with this guy? He's trying to get a following, but he does everything in contradiction to that. Why? Because he really wasn't trying to get a following. He was trying to do the Father's will. That was the key. So, Go to Judea so that your disciples may see my works. Uh, verse 5, for even his own brothers did not see, believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival... He went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, 
Jesus' brothers don't have in mind the the things of God any more than the crowd in chapter 6 had in mind the things of God when they wanted to make Jesus king by force. You may remember from last week over in chapter 6, Jesus feeds them bread. And so they're like, we're going to make this guy king. And they've got an army of 5,000 men willing to help him do it. So Jesus, what does he do? He goes off by himself alone. Not even with the disciples. And what we'll notice here in this chapter is that Jesus goes off by himself alone. He goes off by himself alone as well because of the temptation that is being put before him. What was the demand of his brothers? Well, there's two things. Go to Judea, leave Galilee and go to Judea. Why? What was the purpose? So that your disciples there may see the works you do. In other words, that'll create momentum. That'll create a a following. That will get everybody excited. Right there in Judea, where they're expecting the Messiah. Well, if you're who you claim to be, surely that's where you want to be and what you want to do. They say, those who strive for fame don't act in secret. Come on, Jesus, do what it takes to be famous. They're they're effectively mocking Jesus because they don't believe. But then Jesus separates himself from everyone because their motives are completely wrong. Brothers leave, and Jesus then secretly, not, not making his disciples even aware, he secretly goes. He's alone in his going. He stays in Galilee, but when he does go, he doesn't do it as his brothers suggested, that his disciples there may see his work. At first, it may appear that there's a contradiction going on in these verses, but actually no contradiction at all. His brother said, go there so that your disciples may see. And John goes to great lengths to say that he did it secretly, and suddenly in John's gospel, which disciples are mentioned everywhere, for the next two chapters, the word disciple is not mentioned. The rest of chapter 7 and the long chapter 8, just not mentioned. Why? Because they're absent. Jesus did not make them aware. He did not go there with with a bunch of groupies, if you will. He went there alone to face this trial, alone. Meanwhile, at the feast in Jerusalem, let's read in verse 11. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? It's like a giant Where's Waldo game, except nobody can find Waldo. Okay? Where is he? They're looking for him. Where is he? Where is he? Can't find him. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. So here's the various things that are being said. Some said, He is a good man. Others Replied, no, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders, the Jewish leaders. Why? Because, as we already know, they're seeking to kill Jesus. And if they want to kill him, the last thing I want to do is be caught talking about him. So they have fear of the leaders. Now, again, we're reminded in verse 11... At the festival, the Jewish leaders, it says here in the NIV, were watching for Jesus. Literally, they were seeking Jesus. Twice we've been told, back in verse 1, back in chapter 5, verse 18, that the Jewish leaders were seeking Jesus in order to kill him. So, in verse 11, when we're told that they were seeking Jesus and asking, where is he? We're supposed to remember, oh yeah, they want to kill him. 
It's fresh in our mind. That explains why the people are afraid to talk about him. But their question, where is he, reminds us of two things. It reminds us that, that Jesus is doing things in secret and they can't find him. John wants us to be clear on that point. He's not doing things publicly as his brothers had suggested. Secondly, it sets up the irony when they later claim to know where he is from. They don't even know where he is, much less where he is from. They can't find him. It's this tension that sets up the trial that begins fully in verse 14. And so that leads us to the second, the longest section of this chapter, um, which I've titled, Jesus, Now You See Him, Now You Don't. covers verse 14 through 36. Um, This is trial scene day one. So it's the trial day one. There are going to be two days of trial. Day one, right here. Verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go to the tem- up to the temple court and begin to teach. So Jesus waits until it's half over, and then he goes to the temple and begins to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? So they lay out their charge. Now, in order to understand what they're charging him with, we need to understand a little bit of the background of that culture. In the world at that time... The honor and worth of a teacher was only as good as the honor and the worth of the one who taught him. I mean, we have similar things today. For instance, if somebody's uh, degree comes from Oxford or Cambridge, that's held in significantly higher honor than the person who gets the same degree from internationaldegree.com, you know. There's a vast difference between those two kinds of degrees, or just state university. We evaluate things accordingly. So you've got Cambridge, you've, you've, you've got Ivy League, you've got uh, 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 state universities, you've got private colleges somewhere in that mix, and you've got the, the ones that kind of Johnny-come-latelys that are just kind of uh, degree mills that are kicking out paper. They're all over the spectrum. And so the value of a degree is related to the one that issues that degree. In their world, it was not just that. It was vastly significant. And keep in mind, to them, honor, and this is hard for us to imagine, but in their world, there's only so much honor to go around. It's kind of like we're all at the same meeting place. We're all being fed off the same buffet line. There's only one roast beef. So if you get three slices, that's one less slice I'm going to get than if you only had two. There's only so much to go around. They felt the same way about honor. So these leaders, if you get honor for being a teacher, that's taking away from the leaders of the Jews, me in, the, in their case, you know, saying, hey, you're taking away my honor. Not as if there's some unlimited amount of honor. No, that, that, that was a threat to them if you did that. So they're attacking him on his credentials. So the charge, he was taught by no one. Therefore, he deserves no honor, and his teaching has no worth. That's the charge that they're making against him. And therefore, in their minds, to the crowds that are applauding him, no, 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 you should give all that honor to us, the leaders of the Jews. However, we, the audience of John, who have been reading through his gospel or hearing it read, are aware of something. We're aware that these same leaders sent one of their representatives, named Nicodemus, in chapter 3, at night, so that nobody else would know, to Jesus to say, Hey, Jesus, 
We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Because no one could do the works that you're doing unless God is with him. Therefore, we know that they're lying in their charge against him. We know that they understand that, that he's come from God. But they're, they're saying, ah, this guy, he, he's got no credentials whatsoever. Their charge condemns themselves, they themselves. Um, they just want control. That's why they sent Nicodemus. Hey, Jesus, we know you're a teacher that's come from God. In other words, if you'll just submit to us, we'll give you credentials. We'll give you credentials. Why? So they can control the honor that's involved. So that any fame he has, they get credit for. Okay? And Jesus will have nothing of it. That's why Jesus interrupts Nicodemus and doesn't pay any attention to his offer. And just starts talking about being born again. Which, which is really another scene that it's, it's amazing. So, verse 16. Jesus answered, this is an answer to their charge. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out or will know whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Remember, Nicodemus chapter 3, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. Okay? But they are denying it now because they do not desire to do the will of God. Verse 18, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, honor, personal honor. They... This is what they do. They're speaking on their own because they're all about having honor for themselves. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. And there is nothing, nothing false about him, or literally there's no injustice in him. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Jesus is responding to their charge. And he is subtly, subtly raising countercharges at the same time. First, by saying anyone who chooses to do the will of God will know that my teaching comes from God, <clears throat> he's hitting at what we know already from John's gospel that Jesus' works do make clear that his teaching does come from God. But then he impugns their motives. They do not choose to do the will of God. <clears throat> Unlike Jesus, they're all about the fame of the people, the accolades of the people. Jesus chooses to do the will of God, which will eventually lead to his rejection, suffering, and crucifixion. They were clearly seeking personal glory, evidenced by that night meeting with Nicodemus. Jesus is saying that they, not him, are speaking on their own, since they speak in order to gain personal glory. They, in fact, according to Jesus, are the untaught ones. And therefore, <coughs> they, not Jesus, have a long track record of injustices. A record that actually looks a lot like those listed in Malachi 3, 5 that we read earlier when it says that the Lord will come suddenly to the temple. Well, he has suddenly come in the middle of their feast to the temple. And it says, I will put you on trial. And then he lists these injustices. Well, listen to the list of injustices that they're put on trial for in Malachi 3, 5. Adulterers and perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me. Now, <clears throat> all these things aren't listed in John 7, though perjury is 
immediately in this context listed. But they are the very things that are in that Malachi 3.5 text that you find Jesus throughout the Gospels accusing the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews of, of doing. The injustices to widows and devouring their homes and, and, and so on. Uh, this, this whole list. The only thing in that list that, that he doesn't accuse them of that I'm aware of is sorcerers. Jesus lay, then lays out the specific defense <coughs> for the charge of breaking the Sabbath. Remember, that's why they want to kill him, is this charge that he broke the Sabbath back in chapter 5, verse 18. And so, um, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus is going to lay out his defense, verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Now, there's a counter charge. Here we are talking to the Pharisees. Not one of you keeps the law. <clears throat> Wasn't that their whole goal in life? To keep the law? And yet Jesus says, not one of you keeps it. How does, he, how does he prove that? Why are you trying to kill me? Yeah, that is a big one in the law, isn't it? Yeah, murder. Thou shalt not murder. Why are you trying to kill me? So, <clears throat> first, you want to kill me for breaking the Sabbath. Now, isn't that ironic? You will murder. Well, that's, that's kind of a biggie in the law. Okay, you're going to kill somebody. Because I healed a man on the Sabbath, which you falsely think is breaking the Sabbath. But look at how they respond. You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Now, we've already been told at least twice in this chapter that the crowd was keenly aware that they were trying to kill Jesus. So they are committing perjury right here. They're lying to his face. And we, the audience, know that. Okay? So, who's trying to kill you? The crowd. Not, not his disciples. I mean, basically they're saying, you'd be crazy, man. No one's trying to kill you. But we know they're lying. <clears throat> so Jesus, verse 21, said to them, Now, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed, or maybe as BDAG's uh, lexicon would say we should translate that, you are all extraordinarily disturbed. <laughs> you're, you're extraordinarily disturbed. That word can be positive or negative. In this context, they were really bothered by him doing one miracle. Now, clearly in John's gospel, Jesus has done more than one miracle. That's not the point. He's healed a number of people. But it's that one miracle in John 5, healing the guy at the pool of Bethesda, that, that has them extraordinarily disturbed and for which they want to kill him. Okay? That's why they want to kill him. Yet, because Moses, verse 22, gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, <clears throat> you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body, or making a man whole, if you will, on the Sabbath? Now, it helps. The word for circumcised in, in, in their language has as its root the word cut, to cut away the flesh. Okay? So, get the picture. It's, it's a word picture for them. Now, you're willing to break the Sabbath to cut a man apart, but you get all over me for making a man whole on the Sabbath. You see the, 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 the irony of that? See, the, in their logic, if the Lord gave somebody life on the Sabbath, 
And he was working, then eight days later, on the eighth day, rather, which would be the next Sabbath, in the way they counted days, the eighth day, then we too can break the Sabbath in order to circumcise him because we were told to circumcise on the eighth day. So, not our fault, it's the Lord's fault, so we can do that. So, Jesus' argument is, if you can make a man partial on the Sabbath, why can't we make him whole? What would, what would be the, the problem there? Um, he shows the absurdity of their, their thinking. Then he levels a key countercharge, which he will convict them of by the end of the chapter completely. Verse 24. Stop judging by mere appearances. In other words, you're judging wrongly. You're judging by mere appearances. But instead, judge correctly or literally judge with just judgment. Judge with just judgment. They were unjust in their judgments. They were unjust in their judgments. And Jesus calls them to be just in their judgments and to stop judging by appearances. And as we see, he will press that point through the end of the chapter. Now we have some testimony brought forth. So we have the charges. We have Jesus' defense. Now we have testimony. and We have some new charges that are going to be brought. First... There's testimony that proves that Jesus is not mad or demon-possessed, but that they are lying. Verse 25. At that point, some of the peoples of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Now, what did they just say? Nobody's trying to kill you. You're demon-possessed. But they know that, 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 in fact, they are trying to kill him. Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he's the Christ, the Messiah, the coming king, the one who's going to come. But then a new charge is brought against Jesus, uh, verse 27. But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Now, that's an odd charge. First of all, we will soon see that actually... They will know where the Messiah is from, that the Scriptures are plain that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, the city of David. So, the statement that we will not know where the Messiah is from is a completely absurd statement to begin with. It has no bearing in Scripture. But they're just kind of making it up as they go along. But the real issue, and this is why I think they make it up, the underlying charge, the thing underneath that charge, the real issue for them is that they actually... They know where he's from, and that's the problem, where he's from. Jesus, Nathaniel, John chapter 1, Nathaniel said, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? <clears throat> Thank you, man. You're a good man. Hot tea. <laughs> it is hot, yes. <clears throat> that's good. Um, and whether they're speaking of Nazareth or Galilee, Galilee in general, in their world... That's where Hicks were from. Yeah, well, people are funny like that. You know, how many of y'all from Indiana? Anyone from Indiana? Hey, right here. Indiana, Indianans are proud to be what? Hoosiers, right? Yeah. Now, where I grew up, Hoosier was a slang term to use against somebody that was, you really didn't like. So when I first discovered that there were these groups of people that actually referred to themselves as Hoosiers, I found that perplexing. Why would anybody admit to that? Okay, so it was, it was, it was mind-boggling to me. I, I suddenly realized I grew up in a very small, small part of the world, and, you know, maybe the problem was with me. But people are like that. You, you go to 
uh, Cincinnati and, and you know, if, if people live across the river in Kentucky, well, they're, they're nobodies, they're, they're hicks, but, you know, in, in Cincinnati we're something. But you go to some other part of Kentucky, well, the people across the, the river, you know, over there in Ohio or Indiana, well, those are hicks. I mean, we do this to each other, right? Well, they do this to the people. The people of Judea thought that the people from Galilee were like the worst of the worst, a bunch of bumbling fools. So how in the world could the Messiah, the coming king who's going to rule over us, be from there? That's what's going on in this scene. In other words, the first charge, Jesus doesn't have the right education. The second charge, Jesus doesn't have the right pedigree. He doesn't have the right parentage. Some people are born into the world with poor economic status or maybe a background of non-education. And the world looks on them as being less than themselves. You know, many uh, that, that, are, that would consider themselves somebody would look at them as being less. But that's who Jesus was. In their eyes, he was a nobody. And so here he comes. And Jesus, in their minds, well, he can't receive honor. He doesn't have the right pedigree. But his response reveals that they're judging by mere appearances, and therefore they're judging unjustly. Look at verse 28. Then Jesus still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. Parenthetically, we could add, that is, of course, if mere appearances make for right judgment, then you know where I'm from. But since we all know that he just said that you should stop judging that way, he's about to show them that they actually don't know where he's from. So, I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. Now, he's just flipped their minds, because what? What do you mean? You do not know him. By the way, that's a just judgment. By all appearance, they know God. They are the ones who know God. They have the right pedigree. They have the right education. By all appearance, they know God, but that would actually be judging by mere appearances. Jesus, rather, offers a just verdict, which is that they do not know him. And that's evidenced by their actions. But I know him, verse 29, Because I am from him, and he sent me. Now, Jesus just identified where he's from, the Father, which is what they were thinking. So they still have no clue. Why? Because despite their own pedigree as Jews in Jerusalem, with all their education, they are clueless. And that leads to the final portion of this first day of trial, which I've titled Enmity and Ineptitude. Enmity and Ineptitude. Read with me in in verse 30. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? And it's a rhetorical question that requires the answer, no, not possible. Now the leaders of the Jews are furious. Why? Well, they're unable to accomplish their goal. And the crowd has figured out what they knew back in chapter 3. We know that you're a teacher who's come from God. Why? Because no one can do the works that you're doing unless God is with him. Now the crowd is saying, when the Christ, the Messiah comes, would he do more than this? No. They recognize the same thing. And yet, now these leaders are losing control. They don't have control over it. The crowd's figured it out apart from the leaders. They're figuring out apart from the leaders. 
This infuriates the Pharisees more and more. That's their enmity, their hatred of Jesus. So now they send temple guards to arrest him, and we're going to see their complete ineptitude here. They send the temple guards to arrest Jesus, the same ones, the same ones that will arrest him the night in Gethsemane that he then gets crucified the next day. It's that same group they send, the temple guards, to arrest Jesus. But what we see clearly is that no matter how much they want to arrest and kill him, they cannot until he allows it to happen. They will not be able to do it because it's not his time. And, And we get to the end of John's Gospel, we find out that Jesus makes very clear, he makes sure that they get fed the information on where he's going to be when they arrest him. He makes sure that they know where he's going to be, and he puts himself there so that he can be arrested. But until then, there's nothing they can do, no matter how public he is, to actually arrest him. Because they are completely inept. And he is completely in charge. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Now what follows is to say the least, comical. It really is comical. I think it's intended to be comical. Keep in mind that the temple guards now go to the temple to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says, verse 33, I am with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, "Uh, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What, what did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? And then poof, he disappears. He's gone for three days. See, we might miss the fact that between verse 36 and 37 are three days. He disappears for three days. They can't find him. So it's like a shell game. You know, you put the, the marble or whatever under the shell and you start moving them around and follow the shell and figure out where, where it is. Well, this is where's Jesus, right? The, what, what's going on here? Now you see me in a moment, you won't. You're going to look for me since, in fact, you are here to arrest me. Of course you're going to look for me because you were sent to arrest me so that you can kill me. But you won't find me. And then Jesus adds, and by the way, where I'm going, you can't come. Now again, remember, there are multiple lines in the the the... the the director's script for the musical score, right? All these different lines. There's so many things going on here. But I'm following this one with these guards right now. He, he, he then gets them talking amongst themselves about what it means, what he means by what he's saying. And when they look up again, he's gone. It's like, you know, what is it, Gandalf? He throws down the thing and poof, the cloud of smoke. And next thing you know, he's disappeared. And here's Jesus. He, they come to arrest him. And, and he starts talking and he confuses them, so they start talking amongst each other. The next thing they look back up, and where'd he go? Well, we don't know where he is. <clears throat> and we don't see him again until the last day of the feast. And then he will appear as quickly as he has disappeared. So, about three days later, he suddenly appears again. Look with me under heading three. Look again. Trial, trial scene, day two. Verse 37. Day two, but it's a few days separated from day one. It's a weekend recess, I suppose. On the last, verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast or the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, or anyone who is thirsty must come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, 
rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified or enthroned. Jesus has not yet been enthroned as king. And on John's gospel, that enthronement is what? It's his crucifixion. It becomes clear as we go through the gospel. That is his glorification. Now, remember, it's the Feast of Tents or Tabernacles. Expectations are high for the Messiah to suddenly appear, as Malachi 3.1 promised. And two events occurred in this celebration that are relevant to John 7 and 8 in particular. First, a large golden decanter is filled with water from the pool of Siloam, which becomes really important in chapter 9, brought to the temple, poured out as as an offering to the Lord, and then poured out and drank and shared amongst the people. It was to remind them of the water that the Lord told Moses in the wilderness. They didn't have water. He said, strike the rock and out from the rock will come water. And this stream flows and they drink and they're, they're satisfied, right? So this is remembering that moment. They take this water, they pour it out, and then they even drink some. They share it. This is that the Lord, when he rescues us again, and what Isaiah would have referred to as this exodus, this new exodus that would occur. This is that moment that they were looking for in this new exodus when the Lord would provide water once again from the rock. And the other thing they did is they had these large, giant, golden candlesticks that were lit up. And of course, we see in John eight twelve, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Referring to those, that light that they were looking for. Well, here, in, on the last day of the feast, when they pour that water out, Jesus is, is bringing to mind that he says... Let whoever is thirsty come to me. In other words, I'm the rock that is struck. I'm the one that provides water to satisfy you in the wilderness. I am that one. So Jesus, after the disappearing act from a few days ago, suddenly appears again in the temple, declaring, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said. And then he quotes a scripture. Sort of. Now, we'll get to that in a moment, but Jesus is inviting all who are thirsty to come and drink from him, to come to the the living water, as he had talked about in chapter 4 of John. Just as they're pouring out this water from Siloam, we might suppose that's when he invites them to come and drink. But there are two issues that we have to address surrounding that quoted text. From within him will flow rivers of living water. What scripture is he quoting? Okay, that, that's the first one, because it was common for rabbis to paraphrase verses of Scripture or to even take two or three verses and put them together and quote them as if it was a direct quote, but everybody in the audience understood that they were just paraphrasing a verse of Scripture. And since they were familiar with those verses, it was like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm familiar with that. And, it, you know, it was common. Well, <clears throat> evidently that's what Jesus is doing, because that is not a direct quote from any particular verse. So, what are some of the options? Well, Exodus 17.6, you will strike the rock and water shall come out of it, and these people will drink. Or how about Isaiah 43.20, I will provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen. So, Isaiah is referring to the future, the new Exodus, and playing on the image of Exodus chapter 17 and saying he'll do it again. 
How about Ezekiel 47 that describes in 12 verses the, the, the new temple that will have this river of the water of life that flows out from under its doors and everything it touches gets life. Now, if, if it's that one, it certainly makes plain why he would summarize it in one line instead of start quoting 12 verses, right? <clears throat> but we don't know exactly which one it is. We do know in John 2, Jesus referred to his body as the temple, right? So it wouldn't be out of line for him to say that since I'm the temple, then from me will flow rivers of living water and you'll receive life. That's a possibility. But that leads to the second question surrounding this quote. Whose belly will the water flow out of? Is it Jesus' belly, so the one who believes in him will drink of rivers flowing out of his belly, or is it that the one who believes in him, it will flow out of their belly? Now, ultimately, both are true. Neither, you know, it's not like, well, this one's true, that one's not true. The question is, which one is Jesus talking about here? So, for instance, in chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Well, he could have said, you are the lights of the world. That would be true, too, because we're a city set on a hill. Philippians talks about the fact that we, we are to be lights in this dark world. But in John 12, he's not saying that. He's saying, I am the light of the world. So here, the question is, is he saying, the river of the water of life will flow from me? I think that fits the context of the chapter overall better. Or is he saying that the one who drinks from me, that then they will also flow from them? Well, that's also true. We just don't know necessarily which one he's saying here. And it's debated by scholars. And maybe it depends on, well, what verse is he quoting? Because the him is a pronoun referring to something that came before, and you'd have, to, you'd have to find that in that verse to figure out for certain which one it is. Well, ultimately, both are true. And regardless, his assertion is clear. And this is the most important thing. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, the one to whom the feast has been pointing all along. <clears throat> he is the Lord of Malachi 3.1 that they are seeking. Ironically, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, Malachi 3.1. It turns out they are seeking him in order to kill him. Now, there's some irony, isn't it? But he has now suddenly come for the second time to his temple in the same week. He is the water from the rock in the wilderness that satisfied their thirst in the wilderness. We know that from other places. He is the source of living water about which Jeremiah writes, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Isn't that what we do? We, 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 we frequently replace Jesus with, with broken cisterns. We go looking for things to satisfy us that will never satisfy. And we don't get it. Why isn't this satisfying? Because it's a broken cistern and it can't hold water. You keep dipping your cup into air and you keep wondering why you're not satisfying your thirst. But Jesus is the spring of living water. So we come to Him and we are satisfied. Amen? It is at the end of this gospel and John's gospel as Jesus hangs on the cross. It is from His side that a river of blood and water mixed together flow when the sword is put in Him. The river of the water of life. Well, this next section is filled with various witnesses testifying in our resumed courtroom scene. So let's look at that, verse 40. <clears throat> On hearing his words, some of the, the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Though well, there's some, some testimony, some witnesses. Some other witnesses said, verse 41, He's the Messiah. 
And then still other witnesses asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? See, they knew that the Scripture said where the Messiah came from. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So there are two positive testimonies. He's a prophet. He's a Messiah. There's a third group that has some confusion and ignorance about where he's from. John, John's the last gospel written. John knows that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he just leaves that kind of hanging out there. He knows that his audience knows. But John just expects the people to, to do a little discovery, to seek, to find. And, and so there's, there, there's that. They're divided. And ultimately, all humanity is divided over Jesus. We have to make a decision regarding who he is. Again, those who want to arrest and kill him are unable to. And that leads to the final section, enmity and ineptitude part two. We we once again see their hatred and their complete inability to accomplish their, their desires. Verse 45, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke this the way this man does, the guards replied. This is hilarious. I mean, the finally is not literally there. It simply says, then the temple guards went back. But, but the finally is implied in the storyline, the narrative of this chapter. Because it was three to four days prior that they sent them to arrest Jesus. So the point is, they got, Jesus got lost as far as they were concerned. They couldn't find him. They weren't about to go back and say, well, yeah, we went there and he was there, but we took our eyes off of him for a second and he disappeared. I mean, like what? How would that sound? So they wait and then he shows up again at the last day of the festival. So now they got to go back and report. Word's getting out. And and they show up empty-handed. Say, why didn't you bring him in? He was right there. Why didn't you bring him in? And their answer, no one spoke this way before. Well... Sure. What were they going to say? Well, he was talking, and we got confused. And when we looked at each other to figure out what he was talking about, he disappeared, and so we couldn't do it. They're not going to say that. So, yeah, no one's ever spoken like this man before. (laughs) Yeah, he's bewildered them. So what do they say? Verse 47, you mean he's deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, oh, there's a curse on them. Hmm. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. They follow the pattern of if you can't win an argument on the merits, just start calling names. Right? I mean, that, isn't that how people fight and argue? It's, it's ridiculous. And we see it in our political debates and on and on it goes. But see, they actually end up condemning themselves on two counts. First, the Lord has come to his temple and they declare none of the rulers of the Pharisees believe in him. What a statement! They've rejected. In other words, They have zero allegiance to this one who has come to the temple. And when we get to the end of the book, what do they declare? We have no king but Caesar. 
They reject Yahweh as king out of hand. They have no interest in him as a king. More on that from last week's message. By the way, if you weren't here last week, I think John 6, crucial to understanding the whole book. You can pick that one up online and, and, and download it for free. Um, <clears throat> but I think it, it really gets into the, the whole theme of what this book uh, finally unravels at the end. But we talked about that, that point in particular. <clears throat> so, they reject belief in the one who's come to the temple. And secondly, they say, and this mob that knows nothing of the law. Well, wait a second. Those are the people that come to the temple that hear you teaching. So if they know nothing of the law, like who do you blame? Ironically, they turn out to know a little bit more than the Pharisees themselves know. But they condemn themselves in that. But then one of their own, Nicodemus, points out that, that it is they who do not know the law. For the law forbids that they condemn Jesus without a fair trial and hearing. Which, by the way, he never gets in the book. They, they have a sham trial and send him over to be crucified. In the dark of night. Now, Nicodemus is an interesting character in John's Gospel. In chapter 3, he comes representing the Pharisees, trying to get Jesus to submit to them. I, I would say clearly in, in, in animosity to Jesus, although a lot of people think he's being friendly. I'm not sure where they get that from. But in this chapter, he seems somewhat neutral. He's one of them, we're told. He doesn't ultimately defend Jesus, but at the same time, he, he points out that they're not operating by the law. At the end of the book, maybe a, a bit of a different picture from Nicodemus. So he's an interesting character through this book. I'm not always sure what to make of him. Finally, they testify to their own ignorance. So Nicodemus points out that they are the ones actually breaking the law. And then they testify to their own ignorance. They say, look into it and you'll find that a, a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Well, that's certainly interesting. The Pharisees, the ones who apparently know so much about the law, say, and, and the Old Testament, say that, that, that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Now, Certainly, they should have noticed, say, a, a text like Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, that would allow that possibility at a minimum. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Notice that one of the very next verses, Jesus is declaring, I am the light of the world, back over in chapter 8. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Well, it would seem that people in darkness having a great light dawn on them would be the appearing of a prophet. I mean, certainly in Jewish thinking, that would fit with what was there. And they appear to be utterly ignorant of this verse. Of course, John knows that his audience would be aware of this verse. And it's a dark season of the year, a dark trial in Jesus' life. Those living in this season of darkness are, are lighting candles to demonstrate that the Lord is bringing light in the midst of darkness. You would think that that verse may be on their minds. What a fascinating trial scene, but <clears throat> there are some takeaways that I think we can apply and, and, and think about. First, fame is a temptation for those in ministry and those in the seats. It isn't just for leaders. We all want to be associated with success. Jesus' own brothers, even though they didn't believe, they figured, hey, if he becomes famous, we can ride on his coattails. They're, they're pushing him in that direction. 
Don't we want churches that are successful and famous? I mean, how do we choose churches? What's important to us? What do we want out of worship? It's fascinating. I dare say that if the average American were to go to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, the seven churches, the letters to the churches, and they were to say, okay, I'm picking out a church to visit. I've just moved to this Asia Minor, and I want to pick out a church to, to attend. I dare say that nine out of ten Americans, and I'm being generous, nine out of ten Americans would pick Laodicea. It was rich. Had everything you wanted. Of course, Jesus was about to spit him out of his mouth. And the churches that received the greatest commendation would probably be picked by somewhere less than 0.1% of Americans. Why? Because we're a lot more like Jesus' brothers. And sadly, a lot more like the Pharisees seeking honor from others than we are like Jesus. It's just what we need to fight against. So we face that temptation and need to follow Christ in that. And I, and I hope you see three things about Christ. So, you know, sometimes the application of a text isn't as practical as we might think. It's not like, go do these three things. But, but sometimes the application of a text is worship. And, and I hope there are three things here you can see about Christ that, that help your worship. First, Jesus resisted all temptation to self-honor and worldly praise, even during a time when his life is threatened and it forced him to be alone. That, that, that should bring a sense of wanting to worship him for resisting that temptation and, and, and remaining God-honoring ultimately and going to the cross. Secondly, that Jesus in his wisdom is vindicated of the charges and convicts the unjust accusers of their own guilt, even getting them to testify against themselves. I just, the amazing wisdom of Christ. I want to worship Him. And then finally, third thing there, that, that Jesus did not have His life taken from Him, but laid it down willingly for you and for me. Where do you go in your thirst? What do you do, what do you go to for satisfaction in your own wilderness? Is it Christ? Or do we go to broken cisterns that don't hold water? Jesus is the rock that has been struck, and we are to drink from the water that flows from Him. If anyone is thirsty, that's an invitation to all of us today. If anyone is thirsty, he must come to me and drink, Jesus says. Let's go to Him and drink. Amen? Let's pray. Father, You are the one who provides for us water in the wilderness. Help us to see clearly that Christ is the rock, that water, and that we are to come to Him and drink. Help us to see His wisdom and His glory in that wisdom. Help us to see that, that, that He was willing to suffer and not seek His own glory. And help us to see that He willingly laid down His life for us, that we might praise Him evermore. In Jesus' name, amen.